0: Well, good morning everyone. Good morning. Um, let me begin by, by thanking uh, Anna-Laura for inviting me out. I, I was looking back through my uh, email records and I think she reached out to me in November uh, and over time we worked it out and, and it, it's uh, been wonderful corresponding with you. I'm glad we got to do it. Um, uh, let me also thank all of you for, for, for being here and for all of the Grace uh, Churches for uh, sponsoring. Um, So I'm going to do just a couple of quick things uh, today, and then we'll open it up to questions. Uh, The the first is I'm just going to give you a quick glimpse of why we think uh, talking about race and democracy is important. Uh, After that, I'll tell you uh, why we um, decided to write the book, Chris and I, uh, why we named it Chocolate City, uh, and then why we think that the racial history of Washington, D.C. is important to people outside of D.C., uh, which I actually think is quite empowering to people inside of DC. Uh, Anna Laura has then uh, sent me a couple of questions that I think uh, all of you uh, have, um, and I'll, I'll answer those and then we'll open it up to the, the, the general questions. Um, so let me begin with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, sort of an opening anecdote that speaks to why we think that the, the studying race and democracy in DC is important. Um, so let me set the scene for you. It's, it's 1862. Uh, Congress has just passed the D.C. Emancipation uh, Act. And, of course, D.C. Uh, was the first jurisdiction in the country to officially end slavery. Uh, it did it uh, approximately nine months before the Emancipation Proclamation uh, took place uh, or, or went into effect on January 1st, 1863. Um, and you'll remember, um, if you've read the book or, or, or just if you've celebrated Emancipation Day here, um uh, unlike the Emancipation Proclamation, which really didn't free a single person, it essentially gave African Americans license to run away to Union lines, and then they would be free, so they had to steal themselves. Um, but unlike the Emancipation Proclamation, the D.C. Emancipation Act freed people in place, whether they were, gonna, they were going to secret themselves away in the night or not. There were approximately 3,000 African Americans in the city, uh, and once this act is passed, uh, they move into the realm, out of the realm of property and into the realm Of um, legal personhood. Um, And it's two weeks after that act has passed, and there is a young Civil War veteran already, uh, a city councilman and a developer named Alexander Robley Shepard. He is a man after whom my neighborhood is named, my children's elementary school is named, and he is, uh, along with Marion Barry, the only person to have a life-size statue outside of the Wilson building. Uh, and that is because he's arguably one of the most consequential uh, political actors in the city's history outside of Marion Barry. Uh, And Shepard gets up in the uh, council, he's a city councilman at the time, and says the following. The discussion of the Negro question in this city is at an end. The emancipation bill has been passed. We need not speak of it anymore. Let's get on with the business of running the nation's capital. It's essentially his argument. Now, of course, we know that the issue was far from settled. It's 1862, y'all, right? (laughs) Um, (coughs) Gettysburg hasn't happened yet. The South is technically winning the war, right? Um, African-Americans outside of DC uh, are not sure that emancipation will take hold, right? Uh, Emancipation essentially gets issued as a threat in the fall. Lincoln essentially says, if you are still in rebellion January 1st, then your slaves after January 1st will be free. Which means if you guys just cut it out, we'll let you keep your slaves, right? Um, And so none of these issues are uh, settled. And it just so happens that in the next decade, the following things would happen. Uh, Not only would you get generalized emancipation around the entire country. Uh, either through African-Americans stealing away or passage of the uh, 13th Amendment in 1865, which takes four million individuals and moves them from the area of property into the area of legal personhood. Not only that, but those people are within two and a half years enfranchised, and the men among them become rights-bearing citizens. They build up biracial democratic governments across the South, bring things to that region that it had never seen before, ever. Democracy, a public school system, uh, public works like insane asylums, railroads, and things of that nature. And then before that decade is out, all of those governments are overthrown in a bloody guerrilla war that in certain areas rivals a civil war for the level of violence. All of that happens after Shepard says the Negro question is at an end. Now, I gotta give you another one. Fast forward 150 years. It is spring of 2006. And a young Ward 4 councilman by the name of Adrian Fenty is flashing around the city in his smart car, uh, running between, quite literally, running between um, uh, uh, council meetings non-stop campaigning and training for triathlons, where he's running even more, um, downing vitamin water as he goes. You should see some of the, the, the profiles that, that um, uh, Harry Jaffe does, where he talks about the cases of vitamin water. I'm oh, sorry, did it, did it hit you too, too, too close to home. I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> and he's riding around with Harry Jaffe, and Harry Jaffe is, is looking at this young man, and he is confused. Uh, for those of you who don't know Harry Jaffe, he's a co-author of the book Dream, Dream City, which was uh, you know, really sort of the go-to book about D.C. in the, in the second half of the 20th century, particularly about Marion Barry uh, and the city's struggles uh, during the late 1980s and early 1990s. And so Jaffe knew that race was kind of a central fault line of D.C. politics. And here was this young man, um, a, a product of a biracial family, had gone to the city's Most uh, diverse public schools. Deal and Wilson lived in uh, some of the more uh, integrated uh, middle-class neighborhoods in the city uh, for much of his life. Uh, And here he is, basically not speaking about race at all, and not just not speaking about race in the DC election, but apparently cruising to one of the biggest victories uh, in a mayoral election in the city's history. And in fact, it would be just that not too long after they have this conversation. Uh, Fenty actually wins every single ward and every single, I thought it was a joke when I first read this, we had to go back and double check, every single precinct in the city, right? Wins all of the different uh, income brackets, racial groups, everything, right? Now, <clears throat> Fenty turns to Harry Jaffe in this uh interview. And Jeffy's like, you know, come on, what's the deal? What's with um, you not talking about race? And he says, I certainly don't think about race a lot. I always heard politicians talk about race, but not about the people. They were just talking about making sure every neighborhood gets the same attention. And uh, Fenty basically turns this into his governing philosophy. We're going to focus on delivering services. We are not going to focus on issues of races, race and rights and distributing power. Um, and he governs like this for four years, and during that time he alienates the vast majority of the black population of the city, so much so that after winning an election where he basically wins every single income and racial group, uh, every part of the city, um, he loses 80% of the black population in the 2010 election, uh, and I think some of his partisans will say, "Well." You know, Vincent Gray had Jeffrey Thompson slipping him about a half million dollars, and that's absolutely true. Um, But the fact of the matter is that that money uh, really allowed Gray to take advantage of a widespread uh, uh, distaste of Fenty among black D.C. residents. And the main reason was because uh, they they really felt like he needed to pay them some attention, considering uh, that they had uh, tremendous built-in difficulties with gaining access to rights and resources in the city. Fenty uh, was not taking t- uh, paying attention to that. Uh, and he should have seen the signs. Uh, we have to remember that two years before he gave this interview, Marion Barry re-enters DC politics. He actually gets elected to the council. Um, three years before this, uh, DC uh, becomes the AIDS capital of America with an AIDS rate primarily in the African-American community of around 3%, uh, which was epidemic proportions. Um, And uh, Fenty is not paying serious attention to these things. He's focusing on making sure everybody gets the same amount of services. Most African-Americans are saying, no, in fact, we need a bit more considering our situation. So what I think this does is encapsulate these two stories. I think they encapsulate um, how much many white Americans and a significant number of African-Americans as well in recent years um, view race. They view it as something that we're done with a long time ago and should not talk about anymore, or something to get over and to get out of the way. And what we argue in Chocolate City is that race is the central fault line in D.C. and to a greater extent, American politics. And if we seek to ignore it, to get past it, it can envelop us, as it did uh, Shepard and Fenty. Now, um, let me uh, sort of step back here and tell you a funny story about how we got got to this book in the first place. Um, when I first um, came to DC as an adult to live, I'd been coming to DC as as a child to live or as a child to go to the club, many years before that. Um, but it, it, when I came to DC as an adult to live, uh, I got a job at UDC, it was my first job out of, um, my second job, my first academic job out of uh, uh, grad school. Um, and I, I went to UDC and it, UDC had this, uh, it, for those of you who know the school, uh, has a, a very uh, interesting history. Uh, it's sort of the product of all of this, these schools that had operated in D.C. Uh, in before the 60s. They all got mushed together into one institution. And so there was all of the teachers' colleges, the white ones and the black ones, which had been mushed together before they're mushed together in UDC. Uh, there's the law school, which is sort of started as this new left experiment in an old mansion up on um, uh, 16th Street. Um, there's a technical college. There's a federal city college, which was sort of a four-year liberal arts school, but for a- exceedingly poor working D.C. residents, started as sort of a great society program. All of these have been mushed together into this one institution. And I knew when I took the job that the place was... Was, a, was struggling with that, you know, uh, effort to combine these institutions, which had happened 30 years before, but they were still struggling. Um, but I said, you know, I want to be in DC and I really want to teach uh, poor kids, working class kids. Uh, and so this was my opportunity. I got there, I was chugging along reasonably well, um, reasonably. Um, and I was teaching African American history and modern American politics. That was what I knew. That was what I prepared my classes for. That was what I taught. Uh, And I walked into class one day in 2009 and uh, I was supposed to teach African American history and I look out into the class and there are eight students and I panicked because at that time you had to have 10 students for a class to go, for a class to actually uh, happen. Um, And I knew the back end of what happens if your class doesn't go forward and that is that it's canceled right then and there on the first day. Um, now, normally, I'd be excited by that, like, yay, less students, less work, right? Um, but the other side of the, the uh, policy was that once your class is canceled, right then and there on the same day, you're assigned a new class. Um, and I had a vague understanding that there were no classes remaining in my specialties, right? Like, there's no African-American history, there's no U.S. history. Um And so I rush out in the hall and I'm like, you know, looking for candy in my pockets. Like, you know, like, hey, who wants to come in my classroom? You know, (laughs) you know, you can trust me. And and nobody took the bait for obvious reasons. Um, And so the class gets canceled and I'm sitting there in my chair's office, you know, sort of like girding myself for the worst, And I figured I was going to have to teach like criminal justice or something, which I, I could kind of skate by because I knew a little bit about it. Um, and she said, well, the only class left is DC history. And I panicked again, right? Uh, and I was like, I don't know anything about DC history. you know. And I, and I said it calmly the first time because it was more just shock. Um, and she's like, yeah, well, this is the class that's left, and I and I, I <laughs> you know, you get that that those that feeling of like your chest is sort of fluttering a little bit, and I was like, but I don't know anything about, these. And, and and I you know it kind of came out like a threat, like this will, you know, th- this will come back on you, like this will this will embarrass the department, and and she's like, yeah, I know, It's happened to other people, I'm sorry, um, you should go home and start reading, <laughs> and uh, and so I. So I, I had, the class was the next day. I mean, I, I, I had to suck it up and, and um, go home and read. Um, and it was, it was excruciating, absolutely excruciating. Uh, you know, because for those of you who are teachers, right, like, you know this, you, you plan your class ahead of time. Like, you write out your lesson plans. Sometimes you write out your whole lectures. You, so all you have to do is read and, and sort of catch up and, and get yourself ready. I had none of that. Plus, I didn't even know the subject so rather than try to fake it I just walk in and I was like, guys <laughs> and of course, unlike my African American history class where they had 8 people this had 40, right? so I was like, guys, look, it, here's the deal <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking about so we're going to learn D.C. history together and they seemed cool with that I mean, very understanding students at UDC but I had this one joker in a class his name was Pete Meldoon I can remember his, his full name like we were in middle school together he, <laughs> he made me so upset <laughs> And he would, he would come to, to class every day with these just insane conspiracy theories, you know? Um, and so I'm sure some of you have heard about these, right? So, like, there's this idea that L'Enfant was a Mason, which he was, fair enough, and that the Masons were Satanists. And so L'Enfant, in his clever Mason-Satanist way, had actually uh, placed a ups- an upside-down pentagram. So, so stay with me. An upside-down pentagram in the streetscape. Because, of course, he draws the map of early Washington, D.C. And if you really strain really, really hard the the diagonal streets, that that, uh, uh, the the state streets that that L'Enfant put into the streetscape, if you strain really hard and kind of warp the map, you can almost make out sort of not really a pentagram um, upside down. But, you know. After three hours, this is, how I, this is what I figure it out, right? On top of the reading I had to do that night. So I come back in. I'm like, no, that's not true. Um, thanks. You know, I'll never get those three hours back, buddy. Um, on with the lecture, right? But he would do this on a weekly basis, right? Um, and so it, it made the class that much harder. About a year later, uh, you know, I'm still teaching the class because at that point it's in my repertoire and like, you know, I did a lot of reading. So I know what's going on now. Uh, Chris Ash comes to campus, and he is a D.C. native, uh, went to Delan Wilson, lives right off of Western Avenue. His mom still lives there. Uh, he's now up in Maine, uh, which is why he's not here with me today. And um, I, I meet him, and, and we become fast friends, because everyone at UDC is is right around 60 to 80, because, uh, you know, essentially, well, essentially, you had this, this big burst of hiring right when the school was open, uh, and then you had the riff in the mid-1990s where the city went bankrupt and they fired like half the staff, right? So they had never had another round of hiring in, in the entire history of the school up to that point. So everyone's a solid 30 years older than us. And so I see Chris and I'm like, hi, I'm Derek and I want to be your friend, you know? Um, and we've, we've become fast friends. Uh, uh, we had more in common than our age. Uh, and, uh, and I tell him this story. I'm like, isn't this crazy? And so, you know, I sort of end the story by saying, God, I wish there had been like a big fat volume that I could have just picked up at the beginning of the class and read and sort of used it for my lecture notes, right? Um, or, or, or had a great book that I could have just assigned to the students and then used like the textbook that's out there uh, uh, as my lecture notes. And he does not laugh at all. Like uh, I think I'm a pretty funny guy, right? Doesn't laugh at all. And he just goes, yeah, you know, someone should write a book like that. And I go, yeah, someone should write a book like that. A week later, I get this big, fat email from him, and it has a book proposal in it, and it's, it's got you know two-line instructions. You know, I wrote this up after we talked, edit it down, and let's do it together. That's it, right? So I edited it down, and we did it together, and seven years later, uh, we have this, this, uh, this book here on the table. Um, and the main reason that we both jumped in, because I, I, I was... I was not sure I wanted to do it. Uh, I actually, the, the book that I'm working on now is what I really wanted to write after my first book. And I actually wasn't even finished my first book uh, when Chris sent me that book proposal I was, I was indexing at the time. Um, and the reason I jumped in was because I knew that there was this huge need for a book like this. Um, the last book on, on race in the city uh, that was sort of a sweeping history had been written in 1967, and I think the date is, is quite uh, important. Written by a brilliant uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Constance Green. And uh, Green had written a book called The Secret City, which was really about the, the segregated black community of um, the early 20, late 19th, early 20th centuries. And she focused primarily on the middle class. But that was the last sort of sweeping history of race in Washington, D.C. And so the first thing we knew was that, that there hadn't been a, a really good book that had updated Green. Second thing we knew was that the city was changing at that moment at breakneck speed. You know, the, the, when I meet Chris um, is when they're doing the census. And when the census results come out in 2011, um, it's a huge surprise. I mean, it gets it gets written up in The New York Times, the census results for Washington, D.C. And that is that D.C. had, uh, you know, slipped below 50 percent African-American for the first time in uh, two generations. And so, you know, the sort of the defining aspect of DC's demographics had changed, Um, and so we knew that there were huge numbers of new residents coming to the city who wanted to figure out what they were walking into, Uh, because there there was sort of there was obviously this hidden transcript out there that they were bumping into on a constant basis, and they didn't really know what was behind it. They didn't know why people were reacting to them in the ways that they were. They also didn't know what they were they were displacing, quite frankly. Um, The other side of it was that there were huge numbers of African-Americans. I remember, you know, the black population slips below 50 percent, but it's still well above 45 percent today. Um, Huge numbers of of older D.C. residents, white and black, um, but particularly African-American, who felt the city slipping away from them and wanted new residents to know what they had lived through uh, and and, and that it was valuable. And so we knew that everyone would want this book for a different reason. And, And so that's the reason that we both... Uh, jumped in. Um, and, and and that has played out. I mean, that, that's essentially, those are, those are essentially the needs that we've been serving uh, as we, we go out and do book talks. Now, um, the moment Chris sends me this thing, uh, we start talking about the particulars. And the first question is the title. Because the title, you know, choosing a title early sort of helps you to focus your thoughts, helps you to figure out what you're going to be talking about. And I think it took us about 20 seconds to decide the title. Um, you, know, so, you know, so we're looking through it. It's like, hey, what do you want the title to be? Chocolate City. Okay, good. Let's move on. Right. That's essentially how it went down. And there's a story behind that, and so I want to tell you that to, in, 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 and it's part of that process get you into some of the uh, the details of the later chapters. Um, so first things first, my father is a huge fan of Parliament Pogodelli. Uh So I knew. Uh, early on that uh, Parliament had done a song called Chocolate City which was a headline track for their 1975 album Chocolate City and if you've ever seen the uh, cover of Chocolate City you know that it is a big old chocolate circle uh, on a, a sort of an off-white background that has a couple of the monuments for downtown, the, 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 uh, the, the um, I think it's the Lincoln Memorial, the, the Washington Monument in the Capitol Um, And it says chocolate city across the bottom all in brown as though it's a chocolate coin or something And it was an homage to Washington DC In 1975 DC had a black population of about half a million uh, 70 73 percent african-american and whenever p-funk came here they would have these rip-roaring amazing shows right Uh, And I mean amazing for p-funk right Um, you know, so they're already right here and then they get to DC and they'd be like way up here, right? Um, and so it was really an homage to their fan base, right? Um, and the the basic point that they were trying to make was that, you know, there's chocolate cities all over the country. Uh, is actually a line from the song. It's like, we got Detroit, we got, um, Gary, you know, um, somebody told me we're going to get LA, um, but you're the capital CC, right? That's that's George Clinton. I gotta gotta quote George Clinton at least once. Um, And, and the point was to say that you know not only was D.C. this huge African-American population, in fact, one of the blackest cities in these United States of America, uh, but it was also important because it was the capital of the United States. It, it ended up uh, having sort of this, this, this rank above some of the other chocolate cities that were uh, around the country. Now, um, like all good uh, singers... Um, They didn't make this term up themselves. They just reflected what a lot of people, what a lot of their fans were saying back at them and essentially sold it back to them, right? Um, And what the place where Clinton and uh, Parliament got the term Chocolate City was from disc jockeys on what's now Radio 1. It used to be W-O-L-A-M, African American radio station. Um, And DJs on, on that station started calling the city Chocolate City at least as early as the late 1960s. Uh, And they got it from people just on the street calling D.C. chocolate city. Now, when they referred to it in that way, they were referring to three things that really end up being in this dynamic tension for approximately 40 years, roughly from the mid-30 years, roughly from the mid-1960s to the mid-to-late 1990s. And those three things are, one, the black majority, Uh, D.C. in 1957 becomes the first major city in these United States of America to have have an African-American majority, right? Um, As whites move out in remarkably high numbers, I mean 170,000 in the 1950s, 130,000 leave in the 1960s, African-Americans are moving in, uh, about 100,000 in the 50s, 100,000 in the 60s, and so they're literally going like this. Um, And of course, the suburbs are segregated, so African-Americans have to come here as they're coming up from the Carolinas, right? Um, and so as that happens uh, you not only get a black majority in 57 but that majority goes up into the 70 percent range by the 70s it remains well into the 60 percent range through the 90s before taking a, a pretty steep decline uh, in the early aughts uh, now you can't just have a black majority and call in a chocolate city. I think Ferguson, Missouri shows us that, right? A chocolate city can be a pretty miserable place if you have no political power, just the numbers. Um, And so DC had two other things that made it a chocolate city. Uh, The first was that it was absolutely bursting with black culture, right? Absolutely bursting with black culture, Um, primarily because of the black power movement. Um, uh, We have to remember that uh, black power activists, and, and, you know, Anna-Laura mentioned that I was uh, putting together a map of the black power movement in Washington, D.C. Black power activists started pouring into D.C. in the mid-1960s and bringing with them the idea that culture is a, you know, sort of uh, revolutionary culture is a precondition for revolutionary action, right? Uh, And So you had to get black folks to believe that they had a rich history and that they had a rich culture uh, and that, in fact, uh, and sort of sort of embed that idea in their culture before they could actually act to change the society. Uh, and so people like Gaston Neal, the famed Pittsburgh poet, came here to found the New School for African American uh, uh, Thought uh, right at the corner of U and 14th and did things like had concerts dead in the middle of 14th Street just shut down the street, right? Stokely Carmichael, uh, the foremost advocate of black power thought in the country uh, in the mid-1960s, decides to come here and create the Black United Front, uh, sort of an umbrella organization that tries to tie together all of the African-Americans into the city into a single political uh, organization. Um, and you could go on and on, right? I mean, you know, uh, Malcolm X, when he was with the Nation of Islam, came here a number of times speaking at Uline Arena. Um, Nation of Islam uh, uh, is, has, uh, the Nation of Islam mosque here is the only mosque that was built from the ground up. Most other Nation of Islam mosques are repurposed churches. And I'm not talking about the one in Southeast. It was the, the one that uh, used to be an, an NOI mosque. It's now on New Jersey Avenue. Uh, and it's now a... Um, um, uh, it's no longer part of the NOI. It's, it's a Orthodox Muslim mosque. Um, but all of those things were happening uh, uh, in the city at the time. I mean, Roberta Flack was a DCPS music teacher and was playing on top of old, uh, Mr. Henry's on Pennsylvania Avenue. So for anybody who lives over on Capitol Hill, um, if you've ever gone upstairs in Mr. Henry's, and they've just recently reopened it for jazz concerts, um, the one thing they did with that reopening, which, which just breaks my heart, is that they took down the old sconces on the walls. And if you look at Roberta Flack's first album, you can see the background is Mr. Henry's, and it, and it was sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of set off by those sconces, right? Um, and on top of all that, people like Chuck Brown, a prisoner down at Lorton. Um, We're creating an entirely new music on the streets of Washington, D.C., right? Uh, And that, of course, is go-go. Add to all of that the last crucial ingredient, which is at the very same time that D.C. is becoming more than 65, heading towards 70% African-American, at the very same time that it is bursting with culture It's gaining the vote for the first time in a century. 1968, right about the time that you start hearing the words Chocolate City on the radio, D.C. has its first school board elections, And those are the first elections for local office in approximately 95 years. Stop and let it settle in, right? D.C. had been for, since uh, 1874, governed by three presidential appointees. With the end of Reconstruction in D.C., the vote is not only taken away from African Americans, which was the the purpose of the change to the democratic structure, but in fact taken away from all D.C. residents, many white D.C. residents at the time, including Alexander Shepard, who championed the policy, says rather than allow African Americans to work their mischief as sort of a balance of power between a split white population, let's just end the vote for everybody, and that way we'll have good government. And for the next hundred years, we have... No democratically elected local representatives in D.C. Um, because of that Black Power activism that I talked about just a moment ago, um, in 1974, uh, D.C. not only gets its school board but also gets uh, the first council and uh, mayor elected in a hundred years, uh, and that was the product of some activism that I'll talk about it in just a second uh, that revolved around people like Walter Fauntroy. Um, uh, the pastor of New Bethel Baptist Church on 9th Street uh, and our first non-voting delegate to Congress. Um, so those three things come together, black political power, black culture, and a black majority, and make D.C. Um, certainly not in a pro- place that didn't have any problems, uh, but one that was really quite exciting uh, to be black in uh, during that time. All of this starts to fall apart in the mid-1990s when the city goes bankrupt. Uh, not only goes bankrupt, becomes the murder capital of the United States per capita, uh, and is wrestling with a, a absolutely vicious crack epidemic uh, that uh, really uh, ruins the lives of a significant portion of an entire generation. Um, <clears throat> all right. Now, we make that pitch. We say, this is why we're calling the place Chocolate City. It's really important. And our editors go, yeah, but you, know, you pitched a book that starts in 1608. It ends in 2010, and you've just waxed really, you know, uh, eloquent about a 40-year period. (laughs) So, you know, 40-year period that you've talked about, 400-year period that you're writing about, you know, throw us a bone here. And we said, look, D.C.'s always been a chocolate city. Uh, You know, you'll have, if you ever get one of those really bad tours, you'll have a tour guide say... (laughs) uh, you know, DC, D.C. was built on a swamp, uh, and it wasn't, uh, D.C. was prime tobacco plantation county, carved out of Prince George's County, Maryland, and also, uh, north, parts of northern Virginia, um, and the area was dominated by large tobacco plantations by the time the city was sited here in the 1790s. Uh, in fact, Notley Young, one of the, the, the fathers of the city, in fact, his, um, Uh, His son in law was the first mayor of Washington City. Um, had a plantation that literally sat right where the Banneker statue sits today, uh, right behind L'Enfant Plaza. And we begin our, I think, our second chapter uh, uh, in that space, right? Um, And he owned approximately uh, 250 human beings on his plantation, right? Um, So when you cite a capital, in the middle of Plantation County. And I should add too, Georgetown and Alexandria began as tobacco warehousing ports, right? Um, for the tobacco plantation. Um, when you cite a capital in a place like that, you're going to have a large African-American population, right, because the primary labor force on these large plantations are African-American slaves. Um, and so from the beginning, DC has approximately a 20% black population it never really dips below. It gets down to about 18-19% uh, at one point, but it never really dips below 20% in the city's history. And, you know, during the Civil War, it jumps up into the 30% range. Um, uh, in the 1890s, it, it stays up there uh, pretty significantly. And, of course, in the 1950s, um, it, it goes beyond that uh, into the, the majority range. Uh, and so we argued that D.C. had always been a, a chocolate city. But more than that, uh, and it had also been uh, this sort of beacon of hope for African-Americans in the region. Even in the antebellum period, when D.C. is not just a city that allows slavery, that has black codes to control the free African-American population, and that is a uh, center of the antebellum slave trade, uh, some of the firms uh, in D.C., and, and there's, there's well over a dozen uh, slave trading firms in the city, we're selling a volume of 1,000 of slaves per year uh, down the Potomac. We're marching them in coffles uh, 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 through through um, uh, southern Maryland and Virginia, <laughs> uh, down to the Mississippi. Um, there, we, we start with one place, Franklin Armfield, which is on Duke Street, way out in Alexandria, right before you get to the old line of the district, because we have to remember that Alexandria was part of the district until 1846. Um, but they sold uh, 30... I can do this, good Lord, 10,000 slaves uh, in the 1830s. 10,000 slaves across that entire decade. Uh, Remarkable numbers, and that was one firm in a city that had more than 12. Um, But even during this time, uh, black life was far freer in the city than it was out in the rural districts. And so those African-Americans who could gain their freedom, and there were a significant number of them uh, in Maryland and Virginia during this time, would move into D.C. uh, and were able to create uh, churches, associational life, uh, uh, social service agencies, and sort of the kernel of a free black community during the antebellum period. Uh, During the Civil War, it's the capital of the United States, the side of the United States that's actually fighting for uh, emancipation, at least after 1863, uh, and African Americans flood in. And in the 1890s, D.C. is quite literally the largest and most affluent black community uh, in uh, in urban space in the nation. I have about 90,000 African-American residents, hands down the best black high school in the country. And keep in mind that many southern states at this time it don't even have black high schools. You know, If you go to uh, Mississippi, there are no black high schools. Uh, black colleges essentially do remedial high school work before they allow people to do collegiate work. Uh, and that's because the state of Mississippi has no reason to teach black folks uh, high school educations because they're going to be pick cotton and, and, and nurse babies, right? Um, and DC has one that has PhDs and MAs on its staff, right? Um, just to give you a quick—I I, I still this is one of those stats again where, where it seems absurd, but um, many of you might know the father of Black History, Carter G. Woodson, uh, the, the, the creator of Negro History Week, which becomes Black History Month, was a public school teacher in Washington D.C. Uh, and he wrote a textbook uh, on African American history at a time when most textbooks um, would sort of had sort of given themselves over to the mythology of white supremacy. Um, and not only did he write a textbook on African American history, uh, but between about 1890 and 1920, there were four textbooks written on African American history by black public school teachers. Um, one of the people who wrote those textbooks was from North Carolina. The other three... Winson included in that number were from DC. And that really speaks to just the, 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 the concentration of black learning um, uh, that, and wealth that you had in the city at the time. Um, so we made those arguments as well. It's, it's, you know, it's always had this large population that kind of determines its governance structure. It's been the capital of black America uh, all, all of these different times. Um, what do you think? And they reluctantly said okay. Uh, and so we were able to name it Chocolate City, and that's worked out reasonably well for us. Not the least of which because we get chocolate whenever we do book talks. So, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, now, uh, why should people care about uh, the history of race and uh, democracy in Washington, D.C.? Um, and how much time do I have? Because I, I can go, you know, I'm always bad about this. I go on. Okay, so let me do it quick, We do it quickly, and I'll jump into your questions as well. Um, there's three reasons why you should, uh, people outside of D.C. should care about uh, the, the story of race and democracy in the city. And the first is that D.C. is a stage for the pageantry of American democracy. Um, uh, Congress meets here, the president, of course, resides here, uh, the inaugural parade is here. Uh, much of the backdrop for uh, uh, the pageantry of American democracy plays out here. Uh, Whenever Americans want to uh, protest for their rights, they want a big national event. They don't do it in New York. uh, They do it in Washington, D.C. And that gives D.C. residents an outsized role uh, just because of our proximity and our ability to just head downtown on the subway, um, an outsized role in that play. Second thing is that D.C. is a battleground for national policy. Um, We have to remember that Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution uh, reserves to Congress exclusive legislation over the seat of government, the national capital, uh, not to exceed 10 miles square. Um, And that means a couple things. Uh, One is is that it means that uh, Congress is able, just through a simple majority vote, um, to change policy in Washington, D.C. We may have, at this point in our history, Uh, a local government. Uh, We had it from uh, about 1801 all the way up through 1874 and now we have uh, the home rule era uh, from 1974 to the present. Um, But Congress can overrule the laws of the local government. Uh, It can literally um, uh, change them or it can just impose laws uh, on the city uh, if it so chooses. Um, What that means then is that organized constituencies from elsewhere, Um, who want to fight over national issues, oftentimes target Washington, D.C. You can see this in the battle over slavery in the 1830s. People like William Lloyd Garrison, the the famed abolitionist, who for just a moment had considered uh, locating his newspaper here in Washington, D.C., before he heads up to Boston. Um, But, you know, he says, look, D.C. is the first citadel to be taken in the struggle against the slave trade in the United States. If we can kill it in D.C., we'll be able to kill it uh, across the rest of the South. Now, um, his opponents were quite keen to what he was doing, and so John C. Calhoun, uh, that great uh, intellectual um, uh, generator of ideas that justify slavery, uh, said that D.C. was the South Thermopylae. We must stop the abolitionists here, or else they will be able to end the slave trade across the South. Um, Last thing, DC is a laboratory, so people argue over national issues here, uh, but what they also do, those organized constituencies, is sometimes they try them out here. Um, And so I'll give you two quick examples. Uh, During the reconstruction period, which I talked about in my opening, um, Congress tries out almost all of the major initiatives of reconstruction in DC first because it had the authority to do so. 1862, emancipation is rolled out here before the Emancipation Proclamation takes place nationally. Uh, 1866, African-American male suffrage is rolled out here through the Negro Suffrage Act before uh, the Civil Rights Act and the uh, 14th Amendment uh, roll it out nationally. And In the 1990s, and I'll just give you a quick recent example, uh, charter schools, are tried out on a citywide basis here, uh, largely because the, the, the Republican coalition uh, under Newt Gingrich after their revolution um, had a large number of suburban members who were like, we don't need charter schools, I don't trust them. Um, we have good public schools in our suburban districts. But there were a large number of sort of rural southern uh, uh, congressmen um, who were looking for ways to fund essentially segregation academies? I'm sure some of you have probably heard the name. Um, after the civil rights movement, well, long after the civil rights movement, uh, when Jimmy Carter sort of forces many southern school districts to uh, uh, desegregate, um, in certain rural counties, uh, white residents just leave the public schools and mass, and they found private schools, typically private Christian schools, and they're called segregation academies by civil rights activists, because everyone understood uh, that they were just using the cloak of religion uh, to uh, uphold segregation, for, for, particularly in those, those counties that were like 40% black in parts of Alabama and Georgia and stuff. Um, and they desperately wanted charter schools because that would allow them to access public funds. Because, you know, these people wanted to have segregated academies, but they were poor just like their black neighbors, comparatively right? So it's not like they just had someone give them a couple million bucks to stand up this school, right? In fact, what many of them did is raided the public schools and actually took facilities, took desks, books, sometimes took the phones off the walls. It's pretty remarkable. Um, And so Gingrich says, okay, well, since we can't get agreement within the caucus, let's just try it out in DC, see how it goes, right? Um, And if you look at the other cities that do charters during the 1990s, you notice that they're all places that, that, are since the 1990s, they're all places that have had natural or economic disasters, right? Um, New Orleans, for instance, um, and then there's D.C., um, okay, which, by the way, had an economic disaster with the, the bankruptcy. Um, <clears throat> now, um, let, me, uh, let me turn to some of your, oh, by the way, the reason I'm telling you all this, um, Stage Battleground Laboratory. Uh, is that these roles that the cities play uh, give D.C. residents this sort of outside, ac- outsized access um, to national conversations about the future of the country. Um, and what we've tried to do in Chocolate City is to not only show folks how aggravating playing those roles can be, because it is quite aggravating. Um, just one other quick example, um, uh, Richard Shelby, uh, who's a senator from Alabama, um, who, oddly enough, DC residents helped to get reelected uh, in uh, the 19, um, 1980s. Uh, and I could talk about that during the question and answer. Um, one of his staff members was killed uh, not too far from Capitol Hill uh, in 1991 or 1992. And Shelby was so mad about uh, this young man's death, and it was, it was a terribly sad uh, situation, that he said, you know what? I'm going to force D.C. to have a referendum on whether or not it wants the death penalty. And local officials were like, we don't want a referendum on the death penalty. We don't want the death penalty. I'm sorry, what happened to your staffer is terrible. This young man will probably go to jail for a long time that did it. But we don't want the death penalty. Y'all don't want it in Alabama? Cool. We don't want it here. He said, no, you all are going to have to have a referendum. Um, And it's, you know, so that that type of. And of course, you know, you have to run that election yourself. So you have to pay for the whim of someone else uh, from elsewhere in the country. Um, That can be exhausting. Constantly figuring out um, how someone else from somewhere, really just to please their constituents back home, is going to play games with your rights. Um, But at the same time, I think that that gives us a bit of an opening. Um, And what we try to do in the book is to show that there have been waves and waves of D.C. residents who have tried desperately over the course of the last 200 years um, to perfect American democracy in their own interest, of course, uh, to actually find a way to gain rights uh, for the folks who live here, uh, to make sure that uh, the country's promise Uh, at least as articulated by African-Americans coming out of the Civil War, uh, that all uh, people are created equal, um, could actually manifest on the streets of the nation's capital. And it's those people that we really chronicle in the book, right? And so while we argue that there is this really wretched history of the violation of Americans' rights that take place in the uh, the nation's capital, uh, in fact... There's a point at which we don't have any democracy for a hundred years. We nonetheless believe that the important story next to that uh, is that there have been uh, hundreds, thousands of DC residents that have tried to breathe life into American democracy right here on the streets of this city. Um, And we believe that their struggles are a blueprint for those folks who seek to do it today. Uh, They certainly were, for us, uh, we hope they are, for all of you. Um, so with that, let me let me answer some of the questions that were sent to me, uh, and I'll, of course, uh, read them off so you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, the first was, how big of a role uh, have uh, churches or other faith organizations played in the city's history? Uh, and what are churches and faith organizations known for in their city, uh, if anything? Um, and I can speak primarily to the, 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 the churches uh, in the African-American community, um, and, <clears throat> And the simple answer is that they they were sort of the the primary institution of the African-American community for uh, much of the late 19th and early 20th uh, centuries. Um, And I'll give you a couple of uh, quick examples. Um, It was uh, principally through uh, the the free black churches of the pre-war period that uh, the 30,000 African-Americans who flood into the city um, uh, during the Civil War are given relief. Uh, so the black population in D.C. is only about 14,000 at the start of the Civil War. Um, well over 30,000 come in, you know, what people at the time called contraband. Uh, and the churches are, and initially the, the city government gives them absolutely no support. Remember, this is a white, democratic, secessionist city government. Uh, they don't secede because they can't. Um, and uh, they refuse to give any support to these people, who are literally coming in you know, with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Uh, to, to their name, um, and it's, it's it's churches that, that try to mobilize uh, support during that period. Um, during World War II, just to give you another example, uh, you know, the, the private private industry builds absolutely no housing for African Americans. Um, I'm not talking about the government, but only private uh, developers. Uh, no housing for African Americans during World War II, and. During World War II, African-Americans are flooding into the city, as are white Americans. Uh, the city's population jumps up to about 900,000 during the war. Um, I mean, it's really an astonishing housing crunch. And all of the private development during the war goes towards building uh, segregated uh, houses and apartments. Um, so for African-Americans who are, who are flooding in, they just get the dregs in neighborhoods that, that, that white residents aren't willing to live in. Um, and the, the Church of God, under Elder Lightfoot Michaud, uh, which is right off of 7th Street in Shaw, um, builds about 600 units of apartments, uh, largely through uh, a, a, um, a public um, a loan from the federal government. Uh, and that's Mayfair Mansions. For those of you who, uh, who spend any time east of the river, you know Mayfair Mansions. Uh, it's a sprawling uh, set of apartments over there. Uh, that's built by the Church of God. Um, I was driving down here as well, and... Um, uh, coming down 7th Street and I was looking at the apartments right above uh, the Convention Center. Um, and folks probably know uh, that MICO, the Model Inner City Community Organization, which was staffed primarily by African-American churches in Shaw and led by Walter Fontroy, a pastor of, of New Bethel Baptist, um, helped to build those buildings. Uh, you know, urban renewal was destroying black communities uh, uh, across the D.C. landscape. Uh, and what um, Fauntroy and others in the black power movement in the city says, all this urban renewal machinery, we're going to take it over. And we're actually going to rebuild these neighborhoods in the interest of the people who actually live in them. Because the problem with urban renewal up until that point, you get a couple of federal planners, a couple of developers, and, um, and then local representatives who really saw themselves as representatives of the white middle class, would dream up how they wanted a neighborhood to look, and then they would go into predominantly African-American neighborhoods, demolish them, and then rebuild them for the people that they saw as their constituents who weren't African-Americans. That had happened in the Southwest, uh, where uh, planners took a neighborhood that was 75% black, uh, demolished all of the housing, literally all of the housing, uh, and when it was rebuilt, it was built for uh, white people who had been commuting in from the suburbs, who they wanted to live closer to the Capitol. Uh, and so when the neighborhood is repeopled uh, in the... Uh, uh, late 50s and 60s, it's 75% white and far more affluent than the people that they had replaced. And so the federal government engineers the flipping of that neighborhood. Walter Fauntroy begins calling that Negro removal and says that we, in fact, have to take control of urban renewal. And those departments still stand because of MICO today. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, in the time after MICO, um, <clears throat> black churches are really the backbone of the Barry political machine. Um, and they remain so really until movement of African-Americans out of the city and into Prince George's County uh, makes that untenable. Uh, and, and that's really the case today. I mean, there's still some, some large and powerful black churches. Um, anyone who wants to get elected east of the river has to go and see Reverend Willie Wilson. Um, but when it comes right down to it, churches don't hold the same sway that they used to. Um, and, you know, James Foreman even writes in his book, Locking Up Our Own, that one of the reasons that you don't have marijuana decriminalization in the 1970s. This, this is one of those instances where the power of the black shirt church had some really unfortunate, unintended consequences. Um, David Clark, the, the city council chairman, had proposed marijuana decriminalization, um, and the churches said, "No, it's a slippery slope. Uh, we don't, we don't want to do that." And subsequently, um, you had. Uh, large numbers of young African Americans getting locked up for marijuana possession. Um, and it got so bad that by the early 20 teens, uh, nine of our, every 10 people arrested for marijuana possession in DC were African American, even though the black population had by then slipped below 50% um, and like folks smoke weed across the color line. Um, okay, um, next question. Um, what makes DC different from other big US cities when thinking about its history and development? Um, the two main things are that it, it, it very quickly becomes a white-collar city. Um, D.C. had industry, uh, particularly down by the Georgetown waterfront. You can see traces of it today. And also in Foggy Bottom, you can't really see any traces of it uh, today. Um, but it was always light industry. And, uh, you know, George Washington had these these remarkable uh, plans that D.C. was going to be the gateway to the Ohio, Ohio Valley. It was going to be this huge transshipment point. The Potomac River was going to really be this this thing that connected us and all the grain and everything that Ohio was gonna come through here. And that never happened uh, for a variety of reasons. And so DC's biggest industries became um, government, uh, real estate, and for a time before Prohibition, uh, the Hyrick Brewery, which was actually the largest single employer uh, after those other two industries. Um, and so it was really very much a white collar town uh, from, uh, you know, from very early in its history. Um, And that meant that it never got the large waves of late 19th and 20th century immigration that reshaped most other East Coast cities. Um, And so, you know, you don't have the the huge Polish populations of Baltimore or um, the Italian populations of um, places like New York. Um, Certainly immigrants from those groups came, uh, but not in the same numbers. Uh, And and the, the people who did come were far more affluent generally than the folks who were going to those other cities. Um, What have been some of the most important and impactful events in D.C. history that have shaped the cultural demographics uh, of the neighborhood? I'll I'll say two things. The first is the Civil War. Uh, I mean, the Civil War is absolutely crucial to understanding D.C.'s history as a um, really the sort of homing beacon for African-Americans in the late 19th century. I mean, D.C. has a large and uh, relatively affluent African-American population before the war, comparatively. These are all comparative assessments. Um, but the, the, the movement of well over 30,000 African-Americans into the city, which, which quite literally triples the black population uh, in the course of five years, um, makes D.C. this sort of uh, place where African-American political power is, is capable of choosing the mayor in 1868, and, and African-Americans uh, elevate a former abolitionist uh, into the mayorship. Um, in a, That large population and the possibilities that African-Americans have in the nation's capital also brings these, these nationally renowned African-Americans to the area. Frederick Douglass moves here, um, uh, PBS Pinchback, the only African American to serve as a governor in the 19th century moves here after the fall of Reconstruction in Louisiana, uh, and you can go on. Um, and the other, so that's for African Americans, because that population just continues to grow until it's the largest in the country of any major city by the 1890s. And then there's the, the flip side of, of that, which is that um, federal policy actually uh, uh, really, really uh, pushes the white population out of D.C. Um, in the mid-20th century. Uh, two ways. First, the New Deal um, subsidizes the, the, sub, the building of the suburbs uh, and the building of the suburbs as white residential areas. Uh, and so the Federal Housing Administration essentially lays down the policy. Uh, one, we will uh, uh, make uh, 30-year fixed mortgages uh, uh, you know, widely available, and that's wonderful, Uh, But what we will not do is allow banks to give them out in any significant number uh, to racially integrated or to majority non-white neighborhoods. And so if you look at the number of FHA-insured loans that are are, uh, issued in the 1940s, 50s, uh, all the way through the 60s, uh, early 60s, because there's a push to change the policy in the mid-60s. If you look at D.C., you can count them on your, your your hands and toes right? If you look in the county, uh, they're too numerous to count, right? Uh, And so what you see is that the federal government is literally subsidizing the movement of white DC residents out to the county. Um, And folks want a nice patch of green, good schools, uh, and things of that nature um, uh, as the county is opening up. Um, Now, one of the reasons that they're being pushed out, that's sort of a pull factor, something better on the other side of the line. One of the reasons they're being pushed out is because city residents can't figure out how to apportion resources within the segregated school system. And so in 1952, um, the city transfers Central High School, which is now Cardoza. Uh, But if you look closely at the the entryway, you'll see that you can can still make out the old letters for Central uh, above the entryway, which were cut off after the white population left. Central was sort of the jewel of the, what was called the Division I system, the white, high, the white school system, uh, in the early 20th century. I mean, it had a shooting range in the basement, an indoor pool. I mean, it was a remarkable, remarkable school. And if you look at places place like McKinley, you'll see that the, the, the federal government invested tremendous money in our high schools uh, early in the 20th century, and Central was supposed to be the best one. Um, and as white residents were moving out, in the 40s and black residents were packing in, uh, Central just ended up looking empty. There weren't enough white students to fill it. Whereas local black schools like Cardoza were bursting at the seams. Sometimes students are going on shifts, uh, other times they're just packing 40 into a classroom. Uh, And so the only way that the school board could maintain segregation was to transfer white schools to black students. And because there was such a, uh, a demand for the high school level, uh, they had these very contentious board hearings where they finally had to say, look, we got to transfer a central uh, to Cardoza. And white alumni chapters and white parents and students who were then in the school said, you know what? The jig is up. The city government is no longer willing to defend our segregated communities and our segregated schools. Um, and we can actually see the federal government coming in very soon and just making a policy. Um, so we're out of here. And they left for the burbs. Um, as I said, in 1950s, 170,000 white, white residents leave for the suburbs. Um, that's before Brown versus Board of Education. That's before the riots, right? Um, and so Central is absolutely crucial in that process. Um, all right, sec- la- last two questions. Uh, where do things stand today when it comes to racial division, democracy, and culture? Small question. Um, and how has the migration of how has the migration of many Native Washingtonians out to the suburbs affected the city? I'll take the second. Um, so I mean the really simple answer is that you know as, as, much, as, as much as we celebrate Chocolate City in, in the book, um, large numbers of middle class African American residents, wanted the same things that many uh, white middle-class residents wanted the generation before them, which was access to the suburbs. Um, And so as soon as the Fair Housing Act goes into effect in 1968, which is right around the time that everyone starts calling DC chocolate city, African-Americans start moving to PG County. Um, And and this is one of these oddities of black suburbanization, right? Uh, Black suburbanization tends to take place in bubbles, right? You don't just get sort of integration you get the black movement into certain neighborhoods and then they flip white to black, right? Uh, and so there's not heavy black movement into Montgomery County in the way there is into the PG because folks are trying to to keep parts of Montgomery County white. That, that changes later on going into the 80s and 90s. But initially, the only real path into the suburbs for D.C. residents is PG. Um, and, you, and you can literally see it if you map it out. I mean, the, the inner ring suburbs become black very quickly in the 70s. Then... African Americans jump the uh, the, the, um, the 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 highway and start to move into the neighborhoods beyond it in uh, the 70s, late 70s and 80s, and then by the 90s uh, you get a black uh, county executive. Um, but it takes it takes a while, right? Um, and what you know, my colleague Natalie Hopkinson has argued in her book "Go Go Live" is that Chocolate City has just moved a couple miles east, right? Because if you look at it, uh, African Americans have, have sort of slowly migrated towards the Eastern wards within the city. And then there are now 600,000 African-Americans in Prince George's County, right? That's double the number of black people that are in DC. Uh, and so, if and, and they're contiguous, right? So if you put them all together, there's still a city of 900,000 African-Americans. It is also one of the biggest pockets of affluent African-Americans in the country, right? Uh, rivaled only by Atlanta uh, and DeKalb and Fulton counties. Um, and so, there's no question that there's still a chocolate city. It's just not a city, right? It straddles the line between a state and a federal district. Um, okay, last thing, because uh, I'm going to get to that other one in the question and answer. Um, uh, give your knowledge and expertise. Given your knowledge and expertise, what do you think the role of the church, like ours, of people of faith, should be in pursuing the good of the city in pursuing racial justice? Uh, what should our community do practically? What should you want us to walk away knowing and thinking about, given who we are? So I, I small <laughs> one again, I I have two very unsatisfying answers. Um, the first is, um, is to ask the people who you seek to help what they want. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one quick example. Um, arguably one of the most dynamic anti-homelessness organizations in the country operate, came out of DC and that was the Community for Creative Nonviolence. Um, it was started by Ed Guinan, um, uh, who's, who's uh, inspired to leave stock trading uh, by the Catholic wor- Worker philosophy of Dorothy Day. Um, uh, he actually met the, the Berrigan brothers of Baltimore, um, and uh, they convinced him to really jump into uh, the priesthood and also to engage in anti-Vietnam War protests. And as he's constantly organizing anti-Vietnam War protests in the city, uh, he was a chaplain at GW. Um, He realized, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, we're talking about this place halfway around the world, but we're stepping over the bodies here in Washington, D.C. And so he opened a soup kitchen in Shaw, and within weeks, they're serving like 600 people per day. And he starts listening to those people. And one of the things that those folks are saying is that we need like a place to stay. We need a home, right? We need drop-in shelters, and we need small scatter-site homeless shelters. And so... um, By the late 1970s, CCNV comes up with a plan for essentially a a small-scale shelter, uh, shelters scattered all over the city and drop-in centers scattered all over the city. And if you look at our plan for a homeless shelter in each ward that has been put in place very recently, that's basically CCNV's plan from the late 1970s, stripped of some of its more radical elements, right? But it starts with them listening to the people that they're trying to serve. Right. Um, the, Mitch Schneider, who was one of uh, Guinan's um, uh, comrades, um, you know, and, and far more radical uh, uh, member of the group, um, has, a, has a house where all of these activists from CCMV are staying right up on Euclid Street in Columbia Heights. And um, they're also trying to figure out exactly how this works. Uh, and, and, you know, they knew that Guinan was just focused on services and they wanted to really focus on activism, putting their bodies on the line. And Mitch Snyder starts going around asking people what they want. And they're like, same thing, a place to stay. And so unlike Guinan, uh, Mitch Snyder said, cool, just come here tonight. Uh, and he said within a week, they had 40 people sleeping on their floor. Right. Uh, this is in 1975 or six. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's the best way to approach it. Um, now... Um, I would also say you should take comfort in the fact that your question uh, is one that large numbers of people have been asking in the city for about 200 years now. Um, And that they have left a, I think, really important uh, and revelatory record of the answers that they've come up with along the way. They've never been able to say, like, this is our silver bullet. But they have been able to say, uh, this is what we did, and you can learn from both our successes and our mistakes. And we tried to chronicle many of their struggles uh, in this book. And so so again, I I submit it to all of you as a a blueprint and an inspiration. Uh, So thank you.